Well, good afternoon, everybody. I'm already impressed that I didn't say good morning. We're off to a great start. This is too much fun. We've just had too much fun last week, and we've had two services this morning. Starting off September and filling September with grace, the, the pleasure for anyone, I think, to open up God's Word and to say, hey, let's talk about this thing called grace. It's just too much fun. So we've been having a great time this morning, and I hope you'll be blessed today. Last week, we looked at this notion of grace. We're like, what, what is that word? What does it mean? Is it just, you know, the little prayer you say before you eat? Is that what it is? Is it a uh, good-looking woman from Texas with a bit of a mean streak? Her name was Grace. Is, is that what grace is? And actually, we defined it last week that God has this present for you. He has this gift for you. And our, and our little imagery was it's like a, a massive old big trunk, a, a treasure chest that is just chocked full of what you really don't deserve. That truly, like, God's commitment to you to transform you and make you like Jesus, and then the revelation and the truth that he wants to spill out into your life, how he wants to speak to you and lead you and guide you, and then just his kindness and his love and his mercy and his grace, all of those things, and that we can access this in our lives. But here's the thing, and we called it last week, we said it's favor that we do not deserve. So it's this unearnable treasure chest, and here's, here's the thing, I actually deserve the opposite of that treasure chest. Because of my sin and my mess up and my foul ups, my thoughts, my words, my actions, I deserve like, to be separated from God. And some really ugly words like God's anger or his wrath or his judgment. Truth be told, that's what I have earned. That's what I deserve. But I will never know that. If you're a follower of Christ, you will never, ever know those things. You will only ever know the smile of God over your life. This is his undeserved grace that he is giving to us as a gift. What a great thing to be talking about today. Where I want to head today is I want to look at what is the bullseye target of grace. Any of you who have ever flown in an airplane, gone to an airport, I don't know if you've noticed this, but airlines love to organize their passengers into very distinct little groups. Have you ever noticed this? This is never more obvious than the moment before you actually board onto the airplane. And they get on that little intercom thing, and who do they call first? First class, right? And they get to go through a special lane. And that special lane has this beautiful, plush, red carpet on it. Sometimes I come alongside it, and I'm like to touch the red carpet. Neener, neener, neener. You didn't see me. Because I'm not allowed to touch the red carpet because I'm not, I've, I've never had a first class ticket in my life. I've never done that. And, and they love to do that and, and they're very deliberate about it. And they get to sit near the front and they get to go on first and they get to have free wine and they get to eat their food off fine china. All of these different airlines, they have kind of concocted different names to describe these tiers and groups and, and, and sections that they've put together to describe these people. And here's what they want you to do. You've got to earn points with us. And if you can earn points with us, we'll take you from this group and we'll put you up to the higher group. And it's incredible how motivated people are to do that. I want i got to get the points. I, I want to be in the next group. I, I want to do better than where I'm at right now. And they've got crazy names. They've got the 100,000 Mile Club, the executive members, excuse me. They've got the Gold Club. They've got the Silver, the Premier. I want to be in the Premier Club. 
Don't you want to be in that one? It's wonderful. I think, for me, that is just a, a snapshot of what we're already familiar with in the world that we live in today. The world that we live in today is filled with cliques and groups and tiers. And you probably find yourself maybe somewhere on that ladder. Maybe you're high or in the middle or maybe down the bottom. And there are all kinds of um, criteria. For some, it's education. What kind of job do you have? Is, that, is there notoriety involved in that? For some people, it's the color of your skin. Imagine such a thing. For some people, it's where do you come from? What side of the tracks did you grow up on? How, what kind of money do you make? And then there literally are memberships and clubs to all kinds of different things in life. And you may or may not be permitted to join those clubs. And you may or may not get the benefit of entrance or, or no entrance into those clubs. What I want to do today, starting off, is I want to show you it's the same thing, but it's different. When Jesus came into ancient Middle East, what were those cliques and groups and tiers? Because it's the exact same thing. It really is, I want to get higher on the ladder, but they just had a different personality. They just had a different look to it. So I want to describe to you today three different groups. The first one, and these are people that Jesus had to deal with every single day. The first group, I want to call them first class. There's a number of different tiers in there. One of them were known as Pharisees. Pharisee literally means, has this for an exclusivity, it literally means we are the separated ones. So you're not in the, you're not in the club, we're separate from you. We are the holy ones. Pharisees loved the Old Testament. Where am I right now? There's Daniel. Let's keep going. There's the gospel right there. So they had that. For most of them, good, good Pharisees had this memorized word for word. I don't have that memorized word for word. Not even close. And they love that. You know what happens to a person who's got that much stuff memorized? Pride. Look at what I know. And there's no doubt about it. That's the way they were. So many of them. I know the Old Testament law. I'm an expert in the law. And for them, God was about reward and punishment. So I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to watch those little rules. And I'm going to abide by them it, like to the to minutia. And then I'm going to lord that over other people. And because I'm doing that, I get rewarded from God. I get to look down my nose at you because you're not first class. I'm first class because you don't know what I, don't, what, what I know. And you're not doing what I'm doing. And so I get reward. You get punishment. And that's what they did. Jesus was not a fan of this. There's another group called the Sadducees. More, a little bit more of a political arm. But in that culture, politics and, re and religion were just totally intertwined. Sadducees were aristocracy. They were money. They were wealth. They had clout. Oftentimes it was like, you know, if you had a good family name, that might be passed on to your son. And they'd get elevated into this position. They had a distinct theology about resurrection. And again, it was like, you are either one of us or you're not. But they were first class passengers all the way. So another group known as the Zealots. And particularly from a Jewish mindset, man, they had been colonized by Rome. And so the Zealots, by all means necessary, they were going to violently usurp Rome and get them out of their country. But for them, again, it wasn't just like, we're just active about this thing. They were like, this is a mission from God. And if you're not on that mission, then you're not part of the club. There's another group in first class called the Essenes. 
They were so exclusive, they wouldn't live in a town or a village. They actually moved out to the desert. They were a sect. If you were not a part of them, they would describe you as you were a son of darkness. That's messed up. If you're not one of us, you're just, you're darkness. And they would not give honor or respect to anybody that wasn't a part of their club. And then lastly, in first class, you had the scribes. They, they were smart. They were educated. They were intelligent. They were busy around manuscripts and, again, a lot of the Old Testament law. And people revered them. People feared them. People listened to what they had to say. How's that for a basket of crazy right there? Because that's what Jesus tackled every day. He bumped into these people all the time. And this was how society was structured. And every one of those groups that I've just mentioned, they had influence and money and wealth and clout. They had respect. They had fear. What did Jesus do with them? Where's the bullseye tar? Is he aiming his grace? Is he pulling back his grace and saying, I want these people to have grace? I'll tell you what he didn't do. He didn't ignore them, but he never bowed to them just because they had money or influence. He never was about that. He was attentive to any of them who needed his attention. But oftentimes we see the conversation between Jesus and these elite first class groups of people. It was more that he was actually saying, guys, you've got to cut that out. This is not okay. This is not how you're supposed to function, particularly spiritual leadership. And he was giving them warnings. Sometimes he was scolding them for what they did. But if anybody ever genuinely from those groups asked him a question or needed to know, man, he would give them attention. The second group of people I want to call business class. And I'm probably being a little bit generous uh, by calling them business class. I've never flown business class. Uh, I want to describe it as that sort of that middle group, sort of run-of-the-mill people. And what you have in here, far less uh, number of groups, is you just have your average Jewish families, men and women, you know, 2.7 kids and a goat and a dog and a cat and all that good stuff. And then they're normal people. They believed in God, they went to their synagogue, they went to the temple, they made their sacrifices, but they weren't as good as people in first class. And they looked up to those people in first class, they looked down on them. You don't know the law, like we know the law. You're just normal Jewish people. Yeah, go to the synagogue and listen to what we have to say. You're not a zealot like us. You're not an Essene, you're a son of darkness. This is normal families that actually believed in the God of Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Isaac. Other two groups in sort of that business middle class, you also had widows and orphans. Now, that's a hard life in ancient Middle East. But they hadn't done anything wrong. They weren't considered uh, evil or having done something like that. And so people had a general sense of care for them. But it was a hard life. Unless that uh, widow had been divorced. Um, if, there, if that was in there, then she was a bottom rung. That couldn't be tolerated. So that's the business class. Group, group number three is what I would call coach. This is where I buy my tickets. The chair right there on your knee, and then the chair comes back, and you're like, I'm bringing my chair back too. And that's where most of us live. It's a complicated little world, but this is the world that Jesus entered into. Here are the groups of people at the bottom, at coach, at the back of the plane and the back of the bus. Firstly, you have the sick and the disabled. And you would think, well, What's wrong with people who are sick? 
anyone who had a deformity or a disability of any kind. In this society, people looked at them and instantly they said, you are the way you are because you did something evil. And this is what God has done to you. Everybody thought that way. It was ingrained in their thinking. And so you are bottom of the ladder. We don't give you any time or attention. Lepers were untouchables. They were unclean. They weren't allowed in the city. They weren't allowed to go into synagogues or temples. They physically could not be touched. And if they came near you, you could stone them to death just because they had leprosy. That's bottom rung of the ladder stuff. Again, from a Jewish perspective, Romans. Now, even though a Roman citizen in Israel had a lot of authority and clout and could demand things, from a Jewish perspective, they hated them. No Jewish man or woman would move an inch to do anything to help any Roman citizen. They hated, hated, hated them. You've got Gentiles. Gentiles, they don't believe in God. How's this for exclusivity? They're not a part of the chosen people. You're not like us. We're chosen. You're not. We get to look down on you. You don't believe in the right theology. Then you have groups like the Samaritans. Here's a nasty little description for these guys. They would call them half-breeds. That's what you are. You're nothing but a half-breed. Not only, and your theology is wrong. If a Jewish person needed to travel from point A to point B and Samaria was in the middle, they would take days of additional time to walk around Samaria because they wouldn't even put a foot in the place. That's messed up, guys. That is just crazy thinking. Last two, and these, this one might surprise you. Children. I mean, in our society today, children are really elevated and cared for and, and given things and education and sports and all of these opportunities. And we tend to children in a way that's just not the case back then, not in that culture. Children were of no consideration. Children were um, another mouth to feed, and they were treated with scorn. If you saw a child, you could just push them out of the way. No status, no importance, no attention ever given to a child. And then the last one for coach, bottom of the barrel, what I would simply describe as sinners. Gamblers, drinkers, prostitutes, people who um, gave money on loan at high interest rates to people who were impoverished, people who broke the Sabbath, people who blasphemed God, divorced women, Sinners, they're just sinners, uneducated sinners. And everybody could look down their noses at those people in coach. And given that society, Jesus wants to impart grace. How, what's the bullseye target of Jesus' radical message of grace? And here it is. Please don't miss this. There is no doubt about it. You read any one of the Gospels, just a cursory glance at them. Jesus spent a disproportionate amount of time with people who are described in the Gospel as poor and blind and lame and lepers and hungry and sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, the persecuted, the downtrodden, the captives, those who had unclean spirits. They were the rabble. They were people who knew nothing of the law. They were uneducated. They were the crowds. They were the little ones. They were the least, the last. They were the lost sheep of Israel. And every time Jesus goes in that direction, every time he's gravitating towards them, he had a love and a warmth for failures, for nobodies. It's not that he failed to engage with high society. 
He certainly spoke to them and he healed them and he cared for them and he challenged them. But he never once, ever once, allowed their influence or their money or their affluence to justify any kind of added attention from those who were broken. Matthew chapter 5 gives us this tiny little kind of short and sweet description for this. They were considered the poor in spirit. That's what he calls them. And he actually says, if that's you, that is a happy thing. What a strange thing to say. The word in your Bible is blessed. It can be translated as happy. It is a blessed thing. It is a happy thing to be poor in spirit. Jesus, why would you say such a thing? What a peculiar thing to say. Jesus had this hard to explain attraction to people who were unattractive. He had this go figure it out desire for people who were undesirables. He seemed to gravitate towards those people who were completely impoverished in their lives so that he could enrich them. Matthew chapter 18 has this incredible question in there. And you know what these guys were thinking when the disciples came up. Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Here's what the secret hidden agenda was. Surely we're in first class, right? A little bit of free wine and the nice china. We get to go on first because we're buddies, right? I mean, your kingdom, who's the greatest? It's totally us, isn't it? That's what he's asking. Those who know the law. Those with means, those with influence and clout, those on the right mission, those with education, and they can hardly fathom his answer. Look at what he says. And calling to him a what? A calling to him a child. A child? You can't be serious. That's not the answer to the question. He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mind blown. Whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is the bullseye target of his grace. You see, Jesus is abolishing the distinction between the elite and the ordinary. My, my kids at home, I've got three great kids. They just, they never have to do something or to impress me so that now I will love them. I can't stand that. I hope I'm never like that. I don't want that. I don't want that in my house. I don't want that in between my relationship with my kids at any stage of my life. You show me what you've got and then I'll give you my care or then I'll give you my attention. That never has to be the case. That's, there's no qualifier for that. You see, there's no pretense with a child. If a four-year-old comes to your house for the first time and you give him a cookie, when that four-year-old comes back two weeks later, he's going to march through the front door and go, yeah, whatever. Give me the cookie. Where's the cookie? You see, when I was here last... There were cookies on display, so that's what I know when I come here. And I actually like that. There's something in that that's actually good and right. They don't know. They're four. They don't know that you're supposed to sort of, you know, position yourself in the right way to see when the cookies might be coming your way and politely stand there and maybe make a little hint, perhaps. They don't know. That isn't pretense with a child. There's no, they're incapable of putting on falsehood. Here's where it is with a, with a kid. You got a gift? I'll take the gift. Give me the gift. Where's the cookies? Bring on the cookies. And that's the treasure chest that God has for us. He cracks it open. And he wants something in you to say, you got a gift? 
I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll march past everybody and anything. I just want what you've got. Give it to me. And there's, I know that doesn't sound right, but there's something to that. One of the most, I think, confusing and difficult to understand parables in the New Testament is a parable called the parable of the shrewd manager. You've got this master. He's a really good guy. And he owns and has authority over, he has a company, he has business, he has staff. And the master has a manager who takes care of the day-to-day running of, of everything. And this master is in charge of the money and the accounts and the money coming in and the bills going out and the contracts and the bids and the people who work there. He's in charge. He's the manager for this wonderful, good master. And what happens in the story is that the manager, it would seem, is actually doing a terrible job. He's a terrible manager. And he catches wind one day, and the master's not altogether happy with him. In fact, he's going to lose his job. He's going to get kicked to the curb. And so he's called a shrewd manager. That's not necessarily a high compliment. He's a cunning guy. And so when he sniffs out that he's in trouble and he's not going to have a job, he just goes into fifth gear immediately. He's like, I'm going to do something for myself here. And here's what he does. He grabs the books with the numbers and he starts fiddling with them. He starts changing things. He grabs the books and then he starts running around. He's looking at the bills and the contractors and the money coming in and coming out. And he goes over to this business and says, how much do you owe my manager? Oh, we, we are the master. Oh, we owe a certain amount. Cut it in half. Give me the money. If you give me the money right now, I'll slice that bill in half. Because he's still the manager. And the guy goes, absolutely, here's the money. And then he runs off to another customer or another bill or another client. And he's like, how much do you owe? And he slashes that one. And he slashes the next one. And then comes this crescendo moment in the parable when the master finally confronts the manager. This terrible, crooked, cunning, shrewd manager. And he puts this pile of cash in front of him. And there's the books. And you're like, oh, he's so dead. Look what he just did. He's in so much trouble. And that's the shocking moment in the story. Jesus is telling the story. And then he says, the master looks at the manager and he actually affirms him. And everyone's like, that doesn't make any sense. How can that be? How come he's not just like ruthlessly kicked this guy down into the gutter? He actually says, well done. And he affirms him. What is going on in this story? You see, the shrewd, cunning manager knows that the master is good and that he is noble. He knows that the master is filled with grace. He knows this about his character. What is the meaning of the story? The point of the parable is that God doesn't even expect you to come to him with pure motives. He doesn't even look for that. You got cookies, I'll take the cookies. You got grace, give me grace. I want the grace. I need the grace. And God goes, I'll give it to you. And we think the opposite. Okay, if I can get my act together, if I can be a good little boy or a good little girl, if I can behave myself, if I can clean this one thing up that's just kind of haunted me, then I'll come to God and then he'll give me some grace. It doesn't work like that. It's a gift. It's unearnable. God, in the middle of all of this, wants to blow your mind with his grace. Some of you here today, you actually came to Christ at some point in your life. And do you know why you came to God? Because you were afraid of going to hell. There wasn't something inside of you that said, well, I just really love God. And I really want to read the Bible. 
I want to do devotions every day, and I, I want to go to church. I want to be obedient and change and stop doing the things that I actually really like to do. That wasn't in your head at all. Something inside of you said, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want that. And so you came to God and you went, I don't want to go to hell. And God said, I'll take you. I'll accept you. Even with that motive. Even if it's just a get out of hell free card, I'll still give you my grace. Wow. Is that how grace works? Yeah. I don't expect you to have your act together. I don't expect you to know all, every ounce of theology perfectly. I don't expect you to have the right attitude. I don't expect you to have your life together. I want you to have the nature of a child simply receiving a free gift. A child may be one of the best symbols of people who held the lowest of places. Sinners, prostitutes, lepers, beggars, gamblers. These are people who knew that we're, we're not anything. We are of little account. A child is an image of the kingdom of God, of the least, the lowly. People, a person who's well aware of their inferiority and their shame. But in Christ's eyes, he's like, I don't see it like that. I look at you and I only see tremendous value. The kingdom is for you. The scribes, they were treated with tremendous respect. Like you would just, you would just defer to them every time. I can't have an opinion. They're smarter than me. They're more intelligent than I am. They know more than I do. They understand these things better than me. I just defer to them. I just respect them. I would honor those people. And when Jesus says in that scripture, I want you to become like mere children, what he's underscoring is that there's an ignorance to these babes. Look at what Jesus is saying. The gospel of grace has now been opened to and understood by the ignorant, the uneducated, not just for those who are wise and learned. Jesus is at Levi's house, and he says this so clearly. Here's the bullseye for his grace. He says, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Church, give me some feedback on this one. Like, seriously, like a hands up. Who here, you would say, I know that I'm a sinner. I'm like, <laughs> I know this about me. And, and that's what God wants from us. I think Jesus is operating at a different level than, well, you know, I missed church once last year. I think he's operating at a different level of, you know, last month, one morning, I didn't read my Bible. He's operating at a different level. He's looking for some serious, hardcore sinners and failures and flops. He's like, that's who I'm going after. Remember what we looked at last week if you were here? It's not some little negotiation where you can sit sort of on one side of a table and God sits on the other side of the table and you get a little piece of paper and you write down, here's some stuff that I've done. I mean, this is good. And you kind of fold it over and you kind of slide it over to God's side of the table. Check that out. There's some pretty good stuff in there. You, you should read. And God opens it up. Wow. I, I didn't know. I, I mean, this is amazing. Okay, I got, I got an offer for you. And God writes down, you know, he puts his treasure chest of grace. I mean, if you've done that, then maybe. This isn't some petty little poker game with God. That's not what this is. Grace, it just can't be earned or bargained for. It can't be negotiated where we put our nice, our little niceties sort of as some kind of bartering system with God. 
Maybe you know the, the story of the prodigal son. It's, it's the story of this boy who ran away from his dad, took all this money that was going to be his inheritance when his father passed away, and he grabbed the money and he just went off, and he was just an idiot. He just spent every penny of it. He was partying and going crazy until he was impoverished. And there he finds himself eating with the pigs until he crawls his, he crawls his way back to his father. Again, another one of these blow-your-mind stories. And the father does what? He throws a feast. Everyone listening is like, throws a feast for him? Why would he throw a feast for him? But here's the real point of the story. Hiding in the corner is the brother. And he's filled with envy. And he's filled with anger. I stayed. I was faithful. I worked hard. I did what I was told. It's seething inside of him. Why does he get grace when I've earned it? It doesn't work like that. We serve not to earn his love. We serve because we're loved. And there's a massive distinction there. Now I want you to see, not only the bullseye of his grace, but I want you to see how Jesus actually transported the grace, how he conveyed it, how he actually delivered it to people. And it's actually very unorthodox what he did. This is how he did it. It's incredibly beautiful. He shared meals with people. I think it was like the number one tactic that Jesus used to say, this is how I'm going to just pour out grace into you. I think it's actually difficult for us to understand, particularly 2,000 years ago, Middle Eastern culture, what meal sharing actually meant for men and women in that society. By way of illustration, let me tell a story from this country from quite a few years ago, but I think it's going to kind of click for us with this story. And, and permit me to use some language I typically wouldn't use. I mean no ill by some of the words, but I think it conveys the point. In 1925, a wealthy plantation owner in Atlanta extended a formal invitation to four colored cotton pickers. You get the gravity of that? to come to his mansion on a Sunday afternoon for a beautiful dinner, preceded by cocktails and followed afterwards by several hours of brandy and good conversation together. <laughs> Who does that? The Georgian aristocracy were outraged. Neighboring Alabama heard of this and they were infuriated. The Ku Klux Klan we're ready to torch the place. So we have perhaps some grasp, perhaps, of a caste system that simply could not be violated. This entrenched idea in deep southern America all those years ago that this is just an immovable way of thinking and acting in people's hearts and in their minds. This is, this is not to be considered. In first century Israel, it was forbidden to go anywhere near a sinner. It was forbidden to actually physically touch that kind of a person. Anybody that was outside of the law, to share a meal with them was to guarantee peace and trust and forgiveness. To share a meal with somebody was to share life with them. To invite someone to dinner was to invite them to true friendship. So this tax collector, bottom rung of the ladder, traitor, and thief to Israel. Coach, when Jesus looks up in this tree, 
And he sees this small statured man, Zacchaeus. He says, today, I have to go and eat at your house. And everyone's wide-eyed. And the Pharisees are in disbelief. You're breaking the rules. You're, you're usurping what's the way it's supposed to be. That's not how it works. It did not escape their attention. He's befriending the rabble. He's breaking the law. He's destroying the very structure of our society. And again, I think it's probably very difficult to, for us to understand the true weight of what it meant to dine with somebody. But three things, if I can say this briefly. And imagine these people in coach who never received these things. Number one, when Jesus came to dine with them, it meant this. He was accepting them as friends. And he was taking away their guilt and their humiliation and their shame. He was giving to them dignity. Secondly, it's not like the seats that we have when you think of sitting down at a table in a chair. They would lie down on one side and there would be physical proximity. You would physically have contact shared around the meal and it made those people feel clean and accepted. Number three, Jesus, he was viewed as a prophet. He was viewed as a rabbi, a teacher, a man of God. And so they interpreted this gesture and this time together and this friendship as God's approval over their lives. Who did that for these people? Nobody. And Jesus did it. <laughs> he did it all the time. Like all the time. Hey, should we get some dinner? You and me, come on, let's grab some lunch. We're going to your place. What? He did it all the time. He did it with such, with such regularity that they, they began to say of him, he's a drunkard and a glutton. That's what they said about him. He was meeting with people, and his guest list were peddlers and beggars and the sick and herdsmen and prostitutes and slumlords and gamblers. Jesus would have made a lousy social climber. Here's the nickname that they gave to Jesus behind his back, and they meant no kindness by this. That Jesus, when he wasn't listening, he's a friend of sinners. I like that. I like that nickname. Brennan Manning, he says, he puts it like this. I want you to think about this. If Jesus appeared at your dining room table this evening with a knowledge of everything that you are and everything that you are not, total comprehension of your life story and every skeleton hidden in your closet, and if over, the, over your dining room table he laid out the real estate of your present true discipleship, your hidden agendas and your mixed motives and your dark desires buried deeply in your psyche, what would you do in that vulnerable moment in front of Jesus Christ? Here's what you would experience. His acceptance and his forgiveness. What a meal. What a meal to share. Mark is so careful to note this. When the parents brought their children to Jesus, it says he blessed them. It says he physically put his hands on their heads. Every child, one by one, he's cradling them, he's blessing them, he's picking them up. And the 12 disciples who had shooed these nothing, discardable children away are standing there with their tails tucked between their legs, sort of standing there in silence and in shame. And they're watching one by one another child and he's blessing and he's placing his hands on them. Jesus wants them to see who grace is for, what the bullseye target of grace is. Can you see it? 
Can you see who grace is for? I hope today you can. I hope today that something inside of you says, the bullseye is right here. And can you see other people in your life that you would look at them and say, now that's the bullseye target. Is there anybody here who would say, I'm truly grateful for his grace? Yeah, I'm so glad of it. Anyone willing here to admit, and I've been on the receiving end of this grace, because if you will admit that, here's what you are saying. I am counted amongst those who are unfaithful, who don't have their act together, who are impoverished. My soul has been unclean. Now watch what those of us who have been given this unearnable gift of grace are now supposed to do with it. Let me close with this story. The meeting opened with a serenity prayer followed by a moment of silence. Phil's hand shot up right in the beginning. He's about to change the agenda for the night. Well, as you know, I went up to Pennsylvania last week to visit my family. Uh, and I missed our last meeting. And as maybe many of you know, I've been sober for seven years. But last month, I got drunk. And I stayed drunk for five days and five nights. The only sound in the room was a drip of coffee in the corner. You all know the buzzword, HALT, H-A-L-T, don't let yourself get hungry or angry or lonely tired or you'll be vulnerable for the first drink well I think I let the last three get to me I unplugged and he said I just started to and Phil just choked up he couldn't couldn't finish the sentence and he lowers his head and then he peeks up and he looks around the table all that he sees are moist eyes tears of compassion People are sobbing softly. It's the only sounds in the room. One spoke up. Look, Phil, same thing happened to me, man. But I stayed drunk for a year. Another person. Phil, I'm so glad you're back. I'm so glad you're here right now. Another person, man. You could have hid that, Phil. You could have hid that from all of us. That took guts. Thank you for saying what you said. The substance abuse counselor says, relapse spells relief. You and I are getting together tomorrow and we're going to find out what, what were you getting relief from? What were you chasing after? And we're going to find out why. Another guy says, I'm so proud of you. I've never made it to seven years. I've never even done that. And then at the end of the night and at the end of the meeting, Phil stood up. But all of a sudden, he felt a hand on his shoulder. And then he felt another hand on his face. And then somebody came, and they kissed him on his eyes. And they kissed his forehead. And they kissed his cheek. And they kissed his neck. He was being saturated by grace. And then Joe said to him, Mom, Phil, my treat, banana splits. Let's go, you and me together worship team come on up here we are now ambassadors of grace to who what's the bullseye target to the most broken the most impoverished 
those who are mistaken and guilt-ridden souls that are even in this room today. I want you to experience in this holy moment Jesus setting his sights on you, the bullseye of his grace. I want you to experience the acceptance of the Father and the acceptance of this family here. We will not point fingers and judge. We will only point our fingers to Jesus Christ, the one who gives us this unearnable gift of grace. And then we will come alongside you and we'll place our hands on your shoulder and on your face. And then we will love you and we will kiss you and we will embrace you. For every one of us in this place today, we are co-equal, unentitled beggars at the foot of the cross. And so here's the invitation. <laughs> Come on. Come on. Do you want to share a meal with me? <sighs> Come and share and sit down. I want you to be my guest of honor. You see, the kingdom of God is not about snobbish rules for the self-righteous with their well-trimmed regulations, the invitation goes out to a less self-conscious cast of people who understand that they are sinners and can hardly believe the invitation to sit and feast with the king who says, come and be my friend. Let's stand together and let's sing to this God of grace.